I'm Sarah Resnick. And I'm LaShawn Moore. And we are the hosts of the Weave Podcast, a project of the weaving yarn shop, Just Yarn and Fiber. Hello. Hi, everyone. I hope all is well. In this week's episode, I'm really excited to speak with Kenya Miles. Kenya is a textile artist, farmer, and the alchemist behind the Traveling Miles Studio. Kenya has a wealth of knowledge and expertise in natural textiles, which she has applied to the Blue Light Junction Project, which is a natural dye studio, alternative color lab, retail space, dye garden, and educational facility located in central Baltimore, Maryland. Hello, Kenya. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Can you start out by introducing yourself and telling us about your background and how you began working with textiles and natural dyes? Uh, Yeah, I'd love to. So I, um, I guess background is scattered, Um, not a traditional background in textiles. I um, went to college for computer art in New York at the School of Visual Arts and um, had spent a lot of time, you know, researching and or appreciating um, textiles and um, specifically baskets. I was really into baskets. Um, I think I grew up with a lot of hand-woven baskets on the walls and um, have a lot of memories of that. So I um, was working on a television show. I worked in uh, production in New York, um, television and movie production for um, most of my career there. And um, living there, there was a show that I worked on and it was the original Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. And mm. I did graphics for that. And, um, one day the art director came down from the loft. Um, the Fab Five had this like loft that was dressed and they were changing stuff out. And, um, and she gave me this book and she said, you know, you're always talking about old ladies in baskets and stuff like you would you would love this book and the book was just titled Oaxaca and so um at that point I sort of took in all of these really beautiful rich colorful um deeply held traditional crafts uh, that were on display in this book and I just made the decision that I was going to leave New York and move to Mexico and so I basically spent some time saving up and decided to move to Mexico in the spring of 2005. Um, I moved to Oaxaca with really no relationship to Mexican culture, no relationship to Spanish, no relationship to um, textiles at all. Up until that point, I had been really interested in like, you know, drawing and painting and um, uh, illustration. So yeah, so I went to Mexico and was really fortunate to have people who really took me in. And there was a very specific um, woman who was kind of revitalizing these like old traditions. Um, I went to her one day and um, after having taken, you know, weaving classes here and there in small measure or like basically stalking out these. We lived in a part of the city called Xochimilco. So there are all of these like curtain um, and quilt, meaning just like large blanket makers in that part of the t- of the, the town. So I spent a lot of time like hanging out in those spaces and I actually un- like broke down and then rebuilt a loom with uh, a group of guys there. And 
it was a lot of men doing the work because traditionally the men um, have done the weaving. And so, yeah, so she was able to connect me with different artesanias. And I, I basically was like, these are the things that I want to learn. And so she picked up the phone and she called a variety of, of women and they each sort of took me in um, separately to learn different aspects of the work of textiles and one in particular who I call my teacher Monica she was generous enough that I spent time living with her so that the house that she sort of shared with her daughter had like two big petal looms and it was it's in a town that's like roughly an hour outside of the city and it's called Teotitlan del Valle and that is like the weaving the weaving town um and yeah, so I lived there for two weeks um, every month and would go from the campo to the city and just sort of have this balance of like working fully, being immersed, um, learning different things. And the community are Zapotec. So there's also a dialect, the Zapotec that's spoken outside of Spanish, which is, you know, obviously the colonized tongue. And so it was a lot of really amazing, unfounded sort of experiences. And so that really is the beginning for me of textiles and, and the relationship to being an active participant of it. When I look back at it, my mom, who passed away when I was younger, was a really avid knitter and we would make doll dresses and things together. And so what I have come to understand about like sort of the inherent wealth that these these elders and ancestors give us are like there's all these things that we have within us that may we may or may not be getting directly from them like she didn't sit down with me and teach me how to sew and do all of that stuff because we had a really short time together but I was able to find my way to those things anyway and um, really I think that those memories sort of gave me comfort in feeling like cloth and um, fabric were this thing that connected me somehow to her as well. So I was grateful. I am grateful to have had the guidance of my teacher and do do owe many things to her and, um, you know, still go back and forth and visit and things like that. But that was the beginning for me, just in general, of textiles. And I had some relationship to learning about the process of natural dyes uh, with them. But what happens a lot in those communities is that chemical dyes sort of trump traditional practices and definitely natural dyes. And so um, it was not there that I spent time sort of learning what now is my practice, which is natural dyes. But it was later through just my own investigation that I was able to just experiment and figure things out and mess things up and, you know, not really have have a certain level of guidance in that way. So it's nice to see that there's so much of a return to it so that people can get um, elder wisdom from those things. It's really beautiful to hear you talk about how your family sort of put the bug in your ear. And even though you didn't physically learn from them, they kind of instilled in you something that inspired you to keep moving and to keep pushing forward. I'm really curious about how you first began experimenting with natural dyes. You said that you kind of just went in and tried things and experimented. So I'm curious, like, what were the first materials that you started to use? And what were some of the results of that experimentation? Yeah, it's a good question. And one that, um, I've definitely 
like I have very clear touch points where things started and where they didn't. Um, and so I, I find that really exciting about my sort of like story. My narrative is like, it, it isn't an unclear road. Like it is unclear sometimes when you're walking on it, but being there, I think one of the things that I was able to do was I moved once I left uh, Mexico, I stayed in New York for a little bit, um, did some more production design and then just decided I wanted to be as close to Mexico as I could while still earning, um, you know, currency that is, that is us. And so I sort of decided that California, you know, is Mexico, um, in its Mm. practical senses or its geographical senses. Um, and so that that was a place that um, I needed to go. So I moved to LA. Um, I had a friend who had moved maybe like three to four months earlier. So I was in LA for a little while and then decided that I really wanted to be in the Bay Area because of its history of um, craft and the California, you know, art and craft movement. And so I made my way up there and spent a lot of time like researching all of these different artists who were still in the Bay or who um, had come through the craft movement. And I found this really beautiful center called the Richmond Arts Center, um, which is in Richmond, um, California. And my family is from Richmond, Virginia. So I thought I actually was like, oh, why do people keep saying they're from Richmond? That's so interesting. So many people. And then when I when I found the art center, I was like, oh no, it's a California Richmond. Okay. Um, so going to that center, I was able to continue weaving um, because I didn't own a floor loom or a loom of any kind, um, and I was really able to sort of have access to clay work and jewelry making. I mean, I've over the eleven years that I was there, I've taken a number of courses. Um, at that, um, at that, um, art school. And so part of that was like, I, I had a lot of creativity that I was sort of wanting to channel, um, while, you know, basically relying on my, um, art, you know, computer art based like career, which is the thing that kind of helps support all of this craft, um, for, for a really long time. And so I, had um, this project with a friend who um, is from El Salvador and a friend sort of threw it our way. Like, Hey, there's this um, bag competition that's running out of, um, out of New York. And I believe at the time it was like through Tisch school. I can't remember exactly, but um, it was like a pretty high end thing. I didn't really realize it at the time, but we decided just to go through the sustainability bend and um, there's this really great antique fair in um, Alameda, California, which is like um, miles long. And so um, we, I just was doing a lot of like recollecting and repurposing in the jewelry work that I was doing at the art center and um, in the weavings. And so I started to collect certain things and we just decided to build the sustainability um uh, to do work in the sustainability category and build up, um, a bag of some kind, um, like an accessory. And so one, one of the, the things that my friend was, we were just talking about, you know, finding, um, old rice bags or finding old fabric. And she said, Oh, in El Salvador, people use indigo, you know? And I was like, okay, great. So we got the materials and actually I think her mom shipped us some stuff from El Salvador I was like, great. And she called me. It's here. I go to her house and we're excited. And I'm like, what do we do? She's like, I don't know. I've never done it. 
And I was like, okay, great. <laughs> so how are we going to figure that out? Like, does your mom know how to do it? Do people, you know? And so what we probably could have done was lean more on um, the community in El Salvador to get more information. But instead, I just got really, really transfixed with the idea of like getting blue on this canvas. And um, it was probably like a couple of months of like not getting it done. Like we couldn't, we just couldn't figure out how to get the color to stay on. Right. And so yeah, I think that for me was like this this point of it. W- there was this mysticism around it, and I would be looking for books, and I would be um, really, I was really trying to figure that out. And it was such a it was such a long, um, unpublished, I would say, uh, process. And so um, one day I called her up and I said, you know, I'm coming to the studio. I figured it out, and. She came and when I showed her what I did, uh, because I'd also started doing like wax, um, like getting soy um, and beeswax and like just painting on things and mostly it would just run off, you know, but I finally had figured it out. And so I did this like tape drawing or tape, I don't know, resist and then I waxed on top of it. And then I took that, um, put it in the vat, and she was like, oh, my God, you did it. And I was like, I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. You know, I had all these, like, notes upon notes upon notes, you know, like, every day checking the vat, every day, like, calibrating stuff every day, like, taking temperatures, like, no clue what I was doing, you know? And it, it just felt like the beginning of something so big and broad. And I, and I just, I feel like Indigo, for me, has that that spectacularness of like never being able to quite get it to master it. And so it is, it is a practice that I feel really connected to for that because I'm, I'm a person who really enjoys learning. And so I think that having something that you're constantly a student of is really a beautiful gift for me. And one of the things that I did was continue on that, that path and, started to sell some things, um, you know, and then there was a, a, a resurgence of a craft movement in the Bay Area in sort of the mid or the early 2000s. And so um, I was a part of that community, which felt really good. And um, I took one natural dye class that was in Vancouver at a place called Maiwa. And um, it was so amazing. It was like four days um my dear friend lived like three blocks from it, uh, from the studio, ironically. So I was like there every day, like, you know, six or seven hours. And when I came back to California, I used none of it because I was like, that is all crazy stuff. You know, it's easy when you're in a studio and someone's like, here's the pot, here's the thing, here's the Morton, mm. here's the, you know, but how am I going to do that? Um, at the time, my studio space was in Berkeley. But it was a metal smithing. Um, like most of the guys were metal workers. And so um, the sink would be like full of just garbage, you know. And I was like, I can't get iron on stuff. I have to do, you know, I felt so like boxed in by the things that I could do. Whereas Indigo really wasn't affected by a lot of those things. And I could just keep moving. And so I, I continued on with that practice until you know, I felt really ready. Um, and that happened to be in the form of like one of my friends from college was getting married and I decided I was going to make her a silk tapestry out of natural dyes. Mm, that sounds so beautiful. 
Kind of going back to your first Indigo Vet where you were not really sure how to create the dye extraction. Can you talk about what specifically you ended up doing to extract the dye? Like what were some of the additives and also the variety of indigo you were working with? Yeah, so there are um, there are a, a multitude of ways to um, essentially build an indigo vet. And the components are all kind of the same, though, but they're, they, they derive from different things. You can have a chemically reduced vat. Um, you can have a chemical indigo with um, a natural reduced vat. Like, there are different elements, right? But they're all um, chemically made up of the same things, right? So cocoa leaf might, might work for an indigo vat, but you might use oyster cells for another tradition, right? So there's all of these different ways to reduce, meaning like, to make soluble the um, indigo. And, and the way that I learned was through a, a chemical reduction. It was through um, lye and thiox and or theoria dioxide. And so those two things, one, you can get lye at the hardware store. But in Japan, traditionally, they use wood ash lye, but they burn the wood and then they basically siphon off the ash from the water and put it in the vat. So it's the same component, but it's the difference between what people might say, oh, this is a natural, this is natural indigo. Um, There's also like um, chemically reduced indigo, um, which I don't actually understand the the, um, chemistry of it, but, and then there's synthetic indigo. So I was using natural indigo that I was getting from um, El Salvador. And then additionally, there was a woman, an elder dyer, Cheryl Colander, who who owns a company called Aurora Silk in Portland, and she she still to this day has some of the best indigo. It's too expensive for me now, but um, but it's it's from um, Bangladesh, I believe, and it's a really beautiful strain of indigo, and it's it's a rich. It's like there's almost like a purple um, in the blue, you know, Mm. it's really, really, um, one of my favorites. And so those were sort of the ways that, um, you know, I found a couple of books that were really based around like, um, uh, Jim Lyles has a book that's around like old techniques. I think he spent like 20 years researching all of these old techniques, um, and then trying to make them modern. I think it was like, in the 80s or 90s, the book came out. And so thinking about like these techniques and, you know, there's urine. Um, traditionally, that was used. There's, um, you know, dung there, you know, like all of these things. And then just um, I had a good friend. I have a good friend in Seattle who, you know, she <laughs> she was always willing to try the like extended version. Like, OK, so I've got the urine bottled. <laughs> um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go do the bat outside, you know, and I'm like, good for you. Like, um, I'm not doing that. And I live in an apartment. Um, and so, yeah, so mostly it was just like cross-referencing a number of different, um, processes that people had sort of documented here and there or things that I was finding, um, sort of, um, scarcely but but then also you know there might be a an entry right like some random person would have blogged about it right because blogs were really big back then um meaning like someone in wales or someone in um you know yeah like any any random so i i think that's really how those things kind of came together for me 
And so the indigo that you're speaking of, was it like an indigo powdered pigment? It's a powdered pigment that is the one that I really liked is from the indigo um, Farrah family. And so it, Mm. there are obviously like a number of strains and then those strains go off to other strains. But yeah, that to me sort of produced the colorways that I liked the most. And then also being able to shift like I like to shift the blue to a, a certain blue. So like getting navies, using adding like tannins, pre-soaking things. Like I felt like those were, um, that was kind of the, the, the powder that I liked most. And I, and I really didn't start using, um, now, you know, there's uh, more readily available like fresh, like indigo sludge, which is basically from extracting from a wet process. And the dry process can come from a number of ways. Traditionally in Japan, it's composting, which is a sukumo process. But you can also do balls, which is a West African, you know, Mali and Senegal and Nigeria and Ghana. Like there, there historically were um, like indigo balls made. And you can also have this paste, right? Like a sludge that comes from extracting the, the breaking down the fresh leaf and then sort of separating the pigment and activating it with calcium hydroxide and then straining it off and then taking that pigment. And then that that's your the base for your color, right? The base for your indigo. Mm, wow. Thank you for kind of breaking that down and talking about the different cultures and the ways that they process indigo. I'm interested in talking more about the Baltimore Natural Dye Project and how you're working with indigo with that initiative. Yeah. So again, like I like to say, you know, like I was sort of talking about my story and my path in the, you know, beginning of the, um, the talk is like, I, my family and I moved, um, we were leaving California. We had made the decision to leave California. Um, it, you know, to say the least was unbearably, um, expensive, you know, it was painful to be there financially. And we had a young son and, um, my family, um, is in Maryland. And so I just felt like, uh, we needed some hands-on, um, grandparenting. We needed, uh, some cost of living, reductions we needed some stressors to kind of um, come down being new parents and um, so we moved here and my family is you know closer to dc pg county and we just felt like we had a lot of friends who were in baltimore and from new york um, and other places and some friends who had been here you know 15 20 years who have been like sort of speaking you know wanting people to come down to to baltimore um, to live and so i feel like it was just supposed to happen. You know, even um, one of the things that I said reflecting in a moment was like, you know, I had decided that I wasn't going to do um, computer art or graphics anymore. By the time I was leaving the Bay Area, I had been working in San Francisco at an ABC affiliate doing news for 10 years. And so mm. I was like, I can't imagine spending any more time with the who had just become the incoming president. I can't, I, I can't sit around and watch that. There's too much, there's too much like negativity every day. And I have a child and I just needed like a break, but also to really re-examine like, why am I spending so much time behind what it is that I love? Why don't I put that in, in front of me in a way that is reliant? Cause I used to joke, I would go to these like craft fairs and vend and 
you know, people would be like, oh, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't want, I don't have any money to buy anything. And I'm like, that's fine. I just, I'm talking to you about my work. Like, I don't need you to buy something, you know, or, you know, like there would be these like interesting conversations around like price. And, and I'm like, but I have a job, you know what I mean? Like I, I made a lot of money. So I was like, I don't really need you to buy this scarf, right? Like <laughs> you, you don't, you don't do what you want. But at the end of the day, like I always use that as like a crutch, right? So I didn't need to push and I didn't need to see it succeed in a certain way because I was getting a check, you know? Um, in another way. And so once I came here, I decided to 100% um, sort of fall into my art. And at the time I was doing these paintings um, from a series that I had done, a series of natural dye paintings and and um, and earth pigments um, with soy based around like a painting a day. And so um, by the time we left, it had been like nine or 10 months and I had basically produced more work than I'd ever produced in the entire time I've made art. Um, and yeah. And so I think what I learned from that is like one, um, you know, it's like when someone says like, oh, I don't want to put this fruit tree and I'm not going to be here long. And then seven years later, you're like, you could be sitting around eating peaches um, if you would have just planted that seed. Right. So I see what every day means. And as, as a mom, like you get that more and more, right? Like my time, the parent in general, my time is only so, so broad. And at the end of the day, like everything that I put into it counts, you know? And I would say the same thing of parenting too, you know, it's like this, well, you just keep putting things into and, you know, who knows if it comes out, right? But um, that doesn't mean you don't continue to add to the well. And so, I was essentially breaking out of those sort of norms and putting myself in a position where I had to figure out how to make my art work, you know? And that was a real challenge, you know, for two years. Um, we got here in 20, the end of 2017, we got to Baltimore in the spring of 2018. And so maybe six months into that, in November, I taught a workshop at a local fiber studio called Neighborhood Fiber Company. And I was teaching a workshop that I teach often around printing uh, mordants and painting with, with mordants and then sort of dyeing them, over dyeing them with natural dyes. And so I taught it there and had two mica uh, professors and uh, the chair come and basically sit down with me and say, hey, we have this project that the state Baltimore, um, the state of Maryland and Baltimore City are, are working on, like the governor, the governor's wife, Yumi Hogan is essentially creating this project. Um, and so it was funded through money from the Maryland State Arts Council and the Depart- through the Department of Commerce and um, the Department of Housing. And so they asked me to come and, you know, just kind of participate. And then in the spring of 2019, the project started. And that was really sort of the beginning of my my residency with the project there's a natural there's not a natural there is now a natural dye garden but there's a garden that is a vegetable garden um, and chicken co-op that's like three blocks from my house and so when I was out outlining some of the things that might be of interest in our conversations uh, before the project began I said oh you know I've been interested in starting a natural dye garden Um, and they were really enthusiastic and said oh that's great because we have come to the person who started the garden um, who's no longer caring for it and 
asked her like, can we do a natural dye garden here for this project? So it just ended up being really serendipitous in that way. And so that's how the annex part of Hidden Harvest got started. And then for the state part, there was an outreach for urban farmers to um, essentially start a dye farm on land that Coppin University runs, which is a historically black university. And that had a lot of, I think, there were there were some problems sort of in the the conversation around what that looks like, you know, using land that has never been sort of uh, remediated for a project that you know has a it was a, it's an eighteen month long project. So um, the work that needed to be done to put into an acre of land that is also in a food desert, you know, um, there are a lot of questions came up around that, um, and also the relationship to the historical nature of enslaved people and and the relationship to indigo as you know a commodity that people were brought here to work so and i you know in the beginning i was very happy to be away from that like great i don't i don't have to deal with with those um bureaucratic you know cultural conversations not not that we weren't dealing with that in the class because there's a class that runs alongside it through mica but like, I didn't want to be involved. I just wanted to do the research and the work based around um, traditions and histories and like what the effects of post-colonial um, and pre-colonial um, relationships to Indigo have been. I didn't really want to deal with like the city and politics. And, and I think we all um, as artists were really like, oh, that's for them to figure out, you know, let the DOC figure that out. And at some point, no one had had stepped up no one no one was the farmer you know and we were four months into this really beautiful like project where you know we had all these students um we had community members um in this class um the class was run by uh, valeska popolo and piper shepherd who were the the chair and professor and fiber and the invitation was basically on an ask you know um basis so um, it wasn't just undergraduates for MICA. It was Coppin students. It was students um, from different um, programs. It was master uh, students. It was also other educators um, within MICA. It was educators outside of MICA. It was elders. It was, you know, um, community leaders. And so I think that we just had this synergy that was really magical. And and I kind of thought about it. And um, Rosa Chang, who... Um, is a co-farmer on the project as well as, um, you know, basically the, the leading force for why the natural dye initiative kind of came about, um, through, through her relationship to Yumi Hogan. Um, we, we were like, oh, we should do it, you know, cause we felt really like indebted to, to uphold, um, the beauty of this space, you know, like if someone random is going to farm it, who's never done it, like, wouldn't it be better if it was just us? And so, um, you know, Rose is a very sort of like um, actionable person. And so she, you know, went to um, went to Yumi and Parks and People, which is a park foundation that's been, I think, around for the last 30 or 40 years in Baltimore um, that support park and rec development um, throughout the city. They opened it up, um, opened their campus up to offer it as the farm and um, for what we call the state farm. And um, Rosa, you know, uh, immediately said, you know, Kenya wants to do it. And I think we should, you know. And so that thrust me into this space where I was like, okay, I've never grown dyes 
Um, that was basically the first conversation I had with Parks and People. Like, I have never grown. First of all, I've lived um, in California for 11 years. And so growing things in Northern California is very different than growing on the East Coast. And I have no relationship to like weather, you know? Um, we have a, a temperate climate, you know, aside from like fires and things like that. It's like pretty much either spring or, you know, there's like a short summer and that's it. Um, and things grow really lushly there. And so, um, I said, you know, I'm, um, if you're, you know, you're, you're willing to take the, um, the risk, you know, of me just figuring it out and, uh, we were fortunate enough to get um, another farmer, Sun English, who, you know, they've come in and, and uh, from the beginning of the project. And so they also have a relationship to agriculture and farming um, history and was, was in Oakland doing agricultural work. Um, but I didn't know them at the time. So we just all kind of came in together, Rosa, Sun and I, and um, Rosa sort of supervises um the farming aspect and really does a great job of like connecting all of the threads of, you know, what agency needs to know this. And, um, she's very detail oriented and, and also a really creative person. And so, um, she has a relationship to having grown and also done Indigo, um, for years on her own as well. So, yeah, that's, that's, I mean, the crux of the project, um, anchored in that farm, um, for the state, there's a local garden that kind of runs through Micah and Micah had a class that ran for three consecutive semesters to work on these sort of very long and under highlighted relationships and conversations around colonialism and appropriation and, you know, appropriation of people, appropriation of traditions, appropriation of nature um, and land um, and those kinds of things. Just for clarity, the, the space that we're growing um, the state farm on is no longer, we didn't, we didn't do the um, Coppin land. Coppin didn't, actually end up working for a number of logistical reasons. So the land that it's on is um, across from Druid Hill Park, which um, also has a very long sort of un- unspoken history that um, Sun and I are really interested in doing um, more research on. The thing about this project that has been so um, fulfilling is that much like the indigo vet, you know, there are always these different roads and different paths to go down. And so one of the things that we had come to learn through neighbors, um, and then later through conversations with, um, other community members is that, um, Druid Hill Park was once, um, a plantation, right? And so, um, the land that parks and people sits on is split so that there's um, a highway. It's not a real highway, but it's, there's a roadway that goes along each side. So it's in this triangle, but that was also a part of the plantation. And so I have a lot of um, interest in sort of digging deeper and also looking at a lot of Baltimore um, based um, books that are about Drew, you know, the park or about the city. And there's no mention. I mean, I was like, I started researching it in the summer last year and it was like, this land was, was given over to by, I forget what tribe it was, but it was like a little byline about the indigenous community that somehow gave over this land. Um, and then this conversation about the Akin trolley, um, 
um, plantation that was here once and, you know, all of the good work that this person had done, um, ushering in like the civility of Baltimore, um, as a, you know, as a, as a city. And I was like, wow, you know, people, people really do a good job of only, only speaking from their voice. And I find, I find that to be really, um, consistent and really challenging, um, in researching um, information. My focus really going into the project was around native plants, um, plants that were, you know, used in ceremony um, for, you know, medicinal as well as um, natural dye purposes and relationships um, around different um, American Indian communities. And so that has been, um, and hopefully will sort of come back to center for me, but those things have been really important to me as well. And it's very hard to find anything written um, by anyone who is indigenous um, that has um, a spark of that information. Um, all of it's really ethno, you know, ethnographic or anthropological um, and comes from, you know, white men and women um, uh, and, you know, their sort of um, pre, pre, you know, pre, pre, conceived notions about what is happening and why it is happening and what these, you know, these communities are using this for and what, in what, in what ways they're being used. So, um, it's really interesting in that respect. And so I think, um, that aspect of it, you know, has been really important for the community at large, you know, to have these conversations consistently, um, to face things that I really feel like the resurgence of, um, natural dye in craft, in this sort of modern era has absolutely done no, no work on, you know, it was like, this is fun. This is cute. Um, let's have a party and like, you know, make some fun indigo stuff. And I feel like, um, that was a really big challenge for me when I began teaching in the Bay area was I, I wanted people of color to be taking these, um, classes to be experiencing these things. One, because I was like, this comes from us, right? So, so where, where, where is it that the, you know, the person who is a migrant worker, um, that came from Mexico, that is a weaver, like, why don't they feel like they can do this work in America? Right? Like, what is that? What is that separation? And so that was a really big challenge for me in California. And I, I really feel a lot of gratitude for this project, giving me access to, um, to teach, uh, people of color, you know, I, I had the African-American quilters of Baltimore, um, 20 amazing, um, women elders who I was able to teach certain practices around natural dye to. Um, and you know, that moment w- was one of like a, a lifetime, you know, it was like what I, what I had been hoping and waiting for. And, um, I think those are the things that really set the, set the tone and the, um, the continued sort of, you know, we've had a lot of like uncomfortable conversations and a lot of like moments within the class or within the community that have sort of asked something of us or asked something different in the way that, you know, we were normally proceeding. And so I think that those were really, um, yeah, touchstones and really markers for how to set set things, um, into the project. And, you know, I forgot your question. So I don't know if I, I don't know if I answered it. (laughs) (laughs) 
Okay. Yes, you did. Oh, well, I was asking what variety of indigo you're growing. Yeah. So we're growing indigo fera tinctoria, which one of the things that Rosa is from um, South Korea and also was one of the people who, you know, sort of guided this whole relationship to indigo in Baltimore and her relationship to Baltimore um, as an immigrant and having those kinds of ba- the background between like um, there's a a natural dye studio or, or museum in Naju, Korea, which is where um, Yumi Hogan is from. And so this region has sort of come out as being highly sort of uh, creative and and sort of returning back to all of these original um, ways of doing natural dyes. And so part of that is that the climate in Korea is similar to the climate in Maryland for growing. And so there was like a clear uh, line as to how these plants could grow here, um, as well as within Japan. So we have the variety that is essentially like a short um, annual that, um, you know, will have a wide sort of medium to to dark leaf. um, And then that gets harvested twice a year. Yeah, it's it's interesting to hear you talk about growing indigo fair tinctoria because I know that those are considered tropical varieties. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, no, I, I misspoke. I'm sorry. I'm like, wait a minute, which one am I? No, no, no. I, I misspoke. It is a persicaria tinctoria. I'm sorry. Okay. Oh, yeah. no problem. No, no, no problem. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, it's been a full week. But I, one of the things that we did try to do last year was to grow the tropical indigo. And so a part of that, I think the challenge around that was really trying to, to deal with like it, you know, it, it's a, I hear at least in the, in the South that it's a, um, it's a perennial, right? So it can come back, but also that we have a longer winter and, one of the things that sort of happened is that we started to grow the the tropical indigo and had some success with it. But then we were dealing with like deer and other things taking those plants or um, it was interesting. We definitely we had an interesting point where we had like some volunteers um, dig them all up and Rosa kind of recovered them in our um, volunteer day. Um and those I've been trying to start again this year and haven't been able to, I have like three plants that are sort of growing indoors. So I'm interested to see if the tropical indigo, because of the way that the process functions differently, I'm interested in seeing how, if it's possible to have that as a consistent crop per se, whether that needs to be sort of like partial indoors, partial outdoors, because they can get pretty large. So I think part of that is like wanting to experiment with a variety of um, indigo. The the seeds that we started at the State Farm were given to us by the Korean delegation, which is the relationship that the um, the First Lady has. So we were given a crop of indigo uh, seeds from them, which have which also were I don't want to use the term genetically modified, but they have been enhanced, and so they produce a different like obviously the shades of blue are different in, in each variety, but um, they produce a different blue. They also grow in, a, in, a, in an interesting way. Like they start off 
um, it's like a long start. They take a really long time to get like full growth. And then the secondary seeds that we were given were from Tokushima, from relationships that Rosa has um, with a community of indigo dyers. And that variety is really robust. It's really healthy. It doesn't need, like we had a, we had basically a whole, you know, I'd say maybe like 30 or 40 plants start on their own, like self-seed through the winter into the spring. And now they're like healthier than the indigo that I've grown in indoors. So it's been interesting to kind of observe the natural process of the plant and a lot of times I think what it's taught me is not to be so precious with like its care or the things that it needs. Um, mm. But then also to think about like, that's the work of a plant, right? It's to survive, it's to continue its legacy. And so I'm sort of looking at that in a lot of the conversations around like tradition and work and practice and thinking about like, um, the persicaria being specific to certain climates, but also like it needs a lot less than we think it does. Um, and so I'm trying to figure out the relationship between that and the tropical indigo. Like what, what does it really need? Is it just heat? Is it humidity? You know, like what are the components of what make it viable in, you know, sub-Saharan places or in the South, for instance, versus like, in this zone. Yeah, I mean, just to kind of add to that, I grow indigo sufruticosa. So I would say, I mean, it took a long time for me to get germination. So I planted three times before I was able to get the seedlings to come up and I direct sowed. So I didn't do plugs or anything like that. And um, once they established themselves, I didn't really need to do anything. It just kind of took off and they got really big and they were super plush. And I was like, whoa, this is amazing. I got a million seeds and everything. But the frost came. So I had to, I think I harvested a little too late. So I didn't get the most of the indigo, but um, it is self-seeding. So it will come back next year if you leave them planted after the frost. I know a grower in Virginia, I believe she's in Roanoke, Virginia. She grows both indigo sufruticosa and tinctoria as well as persicaria and she grows them for the seeds. So she's able to, she, the way she explained it to me is she just pays really, really close attention to the harvest. And then once she starts to see just the tiniest bit of blue or yellow, she she harvests those seeds. And it's also my understanding that a lot of people who do grow tropical varieties of indigo, which I didn't understand when I first started, was that they harvest throughout the season. So you once you start to see the plants coming up and that they're established, you can start harvesting some of the, the plants and creating dyes and then they'll just continue to grow and grow and grow as opposed to, I think, Persicaria tinctoria where there are specific moments when the plants have the most indigo-producing agents and... I believe it's like twice during the growing season. I'm not 100% sure, but I know that it's a bit more, uh, Persicaria tinctoria is a bit more temperamental when it comes to harvesting and uh, dye extraction. And I think that's also why the plants are a lot different when you are processing them because they're not water soluble. So, 
Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the things that um, I'm interested in is um, so Rosa Chang started, um, had been working on it for several years before the residency at MICA and essentially started um, an indigo map. It's called the indigo shade map and sort of mm. looking at highlighting I saw all that. of yeah, the varieties um, throughout the world um, and sort of the practices. And, you know, we've talked about like making a little indigo trail. Um, like it would be amazing if um, people would have, you know, be able to sort of venture out and have access to um relationships around who's growing it, like what, um, what their traditions are and, um, what the process of making the vats look like, um, because they're so varied, like I said, component wise, they have the same elements, but, um, it's such a different variety of things. And so it's interesting that, um, you know, you do get to harvest it, harvest, and I guess sort of, you know, the, the sort of slip um, is that people will just say this is Japanese indigo and this is tropical indigo. Um, and so I think sometimes like, I don't even say, you know, like I don't even say it's perfect area. I'm like Japanese indigo, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so mm-hmm. I think that part of it too is like, there's a specific, um, like you said, there's a temperament to it, but also like you can harvest consistently with persicaria, um, but because it is such a lot of work to do the extraction process, it doesn't really benefit you um, to do, you know, if you're going to do two harvests, if you're um, able to get two harvests in the season, um, to do smaller harvest over time, unless you then do um, the sort of fresh, uh, fresh leaf extraction, which is an interesting process that I had not ever uh, done before on my own, but um, we did it within the class um, and Rosa led it. And so we sort of um, took uh, a harvest from the class uh, or from the garden that day from the um, from Hidden Harvest and took it back to Micah's um, dye lab and then worked with um, sort of massaging the leaves in ice water um, and in ice cubes. And at the same time, like I got, you know, I had read a little bit on different practices. And so I was like, can we just throw a bunch of salt? We have like, there's like a huge tub of salt in the dye kitchen. I was like, can we just throw some salt in there? So like threw a bunch of salt in um, and added like, um, you know, silks and uh, different, um, different uh, yarn and things like that. And we got some amazing colors that I have not ever gotten from, um, you know, that, produced indigo. Um, and so I think what was nice about that, you know, blending it, macerating it, you know, putting it in your hands and massaging it, you know, um, adding the salt, um, and then coming up with this thing is like, it's a lot of work. And I mean, no one, um, really has the capacity to do that for yarded, but I feel like it's, um, it's another way to sort of engage in the, the capacities of, uh, the color that can be found from this. And we also at the state farm, so you did ask what we were growing, but so we're the, the Japanese indigo that, you know, sort of came from Korea. Like that's the funny part and is also a little bit modified is at the state farm. We also had marigolds, a variety of, um, French, Spanish and, um, African marigolds. And then the other thing we really wanted to look at was woad and woad is also, um, an indigo and, 
Woad has this like origin in the Middle East, but we only really hear of it in Northern Europe. So Ireland and places like that have these like folkloric and long traditions of being um, Woad centered um, countries. And so we were really wanting to look at like what the growing pattern of woad was like why it's considered um, invasive, why people um, call it a weed, you know, um, because historically there's all these things that extend to a narrative that is specific to like who's telling the story. And so one of the things that we do in um, the annex at the, the dye garden at Hidden Harvest is like we call it plants we are not cultivating. So my, you know, my son, who's almost five, you know, he'll say, oh, are we going plants we're not cultivating, you know, like, are we going, instead of saying, are we weeding today, you know, because it, it, I think that that's, there are ways that you can shift your own um, sort of uh, miseducation by just the way that you use words and just the way that you engage with your, with your practice. It's like, um, this is just not something I'm cultivating. It doesn't mean it has no value. It doesn't mean it's worthless. It doesn't mean it's um, invasive or it's, um, you know, it's disruptive, right? Um, mm-hmm. It's a, it's a survivor, right? And yeah. Mo- and also yeah. just to kind of add to that, a lot of the things that we consider weeds are actually really nutritious, like absolutely things like dandelion greens, stinging needle, like all of those things that grow in the wild that people tend to try to kill off on their lawns are actually some of the most nutritious, multi-purpose things that could do wonderful things in a garden. Yeah. And and what's been great about having community that um, are Korean and from other cultures is like we find things in the garden and we'll have um, you know an elder there working and they'll be like do you know what this is you know like this is this is what we use this for in Korea or this is what we use this for in you know um, in different an, another country or another cultural dish or, or things like that and I feel like. Um, I don't know, you know, like I didn't, I have a family who comes from agriculture, like my great grandparents were farmers, my grandparents grew all their, you know, food, but I didn't see myself in that work. I didn't, I wasn't against the work. I think I just was like, that's what my family does, you know, and Mm -hmm. not living in um, the same city as they did. I sort of had this different relationship to, you know, who and what work I would be doing. And so going back and sort of seeing like my dad said to me, you know, like your grandparents would be really proud of you. That really gave things to me in a different light in that, again, talking about the things that we learn um, and really impressing those things into our psyche. um, I am a hundred percent doing that with my son. You know, I spend a lot of time making sure um, he sees me in my work. Um, And the reason that I started the daily uh, textile paintings was because I wanted him to see me in my work, not to hear me talk about it, but to see me in it. And I see that in a lot of the things that I'm become, you know, I'm, I'm having a new relationship to, um, or my first relationship to is like learning about those things versus like hearing about those things, right. Touching something in the ground versus like having food already on my plate. Right. Like it gives Mm. you a different sense of something, you know, Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And one last question before you go. 
I wanted to ask you because I saw on your Instagram that you posted an image of cotton. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about what inspired you to grow it and uh, how you sourced your seeds? Yeah. So um, the cotton thing just kind of happened. I think the first season I was really all over the place. Um, in general, I'm I'm a, a traveler um, and I travel to teach and there's like a thousand things to do. And so in the beginning of this project, like I said, I was really aligned around native species um, in uh, this bioregion. And then also I'm um, thinking about indigenous like work and wisdom. And um, so I was really just looking at any plant, right? Like, okay, great. That has this thing, you know, let's try to get it in the garden. And so I just started tons of different plants. And I think someone, um, an elder dyer came, um, who was also a part of, um, the course at Micah, um, Louise, she came and she said, I have cotton, it's brown cotton. Um, and so it's a, it's a strain of cotton, that um, is native to India and also has a natural um, color to it, right? So thinking about sustainability and also, I mean, obviously, like I'm a natural dyer, so um, I do want to, you know, enhance things with plants and their color, but also find that there's a lot of waste that happens, you know, just because it's natural doesn't mean, um, you know, it's not harmful, And so I think making those distinctions um, is important in the work. And then also um, cotton is, um, you know, heavily um, farmed and it's also heavily um, reliant on on um, water. And so what are some of the ways? Because then when you go into the dyeing process, then you're relying on more water. Right. So looking at this brown cotton and really thinking about how um, it can just go from being, um, you know, harvested to then being um, spun to then being woven um, was really exciting for me. And so I was given plants um, that we um, put in the garden last year and there were like six plants, I think. um, And watching them evolve, you know, to these like, um, flowers and then for the bowls to start. And then for, you know, like I was, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, you know, I cared about the other plants in the garden. (laughs) We'll say that I don't want to speak negatively about my (laughs) lack of focus, but I was just like, I, every day I would go past the garden and I would be like, how are you cotton? You know, (laughs) what do you need? Oh, look, there is this thing. Oh, look, you know, to the point where in the winter, um, it must have been November, December, like one of the bowls came like it was still, um, you know, producing. And like, I must have told everybody, you know, I don't think anybody cared. But I was like, guess what I just got from the garden, you know, <laughs> December and this cotton is, you know, and I think just, you know, I was able to obviously, um, collect seed because, you know, within the bowls, the seeds are, um, around the fiber and, um, it's such a beautiful color and it's like this like tanny, you know, like soft Brown, like the kind of wood I love in my home. And I just love it. And so I think part of it was this like, um, again, like, um, 
a relationship you, you didn't know you needed to have or like a healing you didn't know you needed to go through because it is not the cotton that was, um, you know, grown by enslaved people, um, you know, of whom I am a descendant. But um, there is something really enriching and exciting to just know that like this is the work, you know, this is the work. Very, very um, compactly, very small. But, um, you know, I consider standing over a plant and caring for it as a prayer, you know, um, as, as an offering as, um, um, so that's that devotion, right? Like that, um, coming to, uh, every day was, yeah, it's just something that like, I, I, I want to have more of. And I mean, I probably started, 60 or 80 cotton, you know, plants this year. Um, and I have not, I don't know what's going on with our weather. Like it's a very, um, up and down. Like we didn't have our, um, first, um, our first frost, the end of frost was like the 31st of April, you know, Mm -hmm, like just forever, you know, and I put some out to like test, and then those died back and then, and then some of them came back and then we had like a 30 degree night and then they all died. And, you know, it was like, so this year, I'm not sure what's going to happen. Um, um, the elder dyer is also growing, um, plants, um, cotton plants so that we can just try to seed collect. Um, and that, that, another, you know, is another part of really the preservation and the perpetuation of it is like, growing um I started growing um Hopi corn and I'd really like to start growing um some indigenous strains of corn I I know it's a fad now but um I'm really looking at looking at it from this sort of like um preservation space um and I want to be able to have that garden um at Hidden Harvest to be um a space where you can go into and you can really understand um and learn a lot about, um, these sort of, uh, traditional, um, plants. Um, yeah. I'm excited to see what comes of your cotton crop for this year. I mean, 60 to 80 seeds is, is a pretty big amount of cotton to, to be growing. And I'm excited for the prospects of uh, seeing how it turns out in the climate that you're growing in. Yeah, that's what, again, like, I definitely would love to hear about the process and, you know, your work and the things that you're doing there. I think because temperately, right, like, there's only, I sent some seeds up to another dyer in New York, and, and I said, you know, I I don't know what's going to happen <laughs> in upstate New York, but um, you can try to start it. You might not get anything, but if you take it in, um, you know, have it in a pot, take it in, and maybe next year... Um, you know, it'll go through the process in a, in a better way. Like, I don't know. Um, and I think that's a mm-hmm. lot of what, um, is happening is like a lot of, I don't know, you know, I don't know. And I don't purport to, and, um, you know, I'm not like an indigo master and I'm not like a master, um, farmer. And, you know, I've had people say to me like, Oh, I'm a this, I'm a that. And I'm like, that's great. You know? Um, but I'm just a student, you know, I'm constantly wanting to learn and to know and to practice and to participate. And I think that this project has given me such, um, 
a space to do that. I mean, I definitely commented like I wouldn't have been doing any of this um, because I would have been hustling trying to make money. Right. So right. we also have to really think about what our investments allow our communities, how our investments allow our communities to be enriched, you know, um, and to be able again to come to Baltimore out of the blue and to be a natural dyer and to have a state funded project um, is 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 like divine, you know, um, and so I, I think that it doesn't always have to be a miracle. It's really about investing in. Um, your community and what you want to see um, and how those things can enrich your life and the lives of other people beyond that. Absolutely. And you currently have a GoFundMe for the Blue Light Junction, which is an alternative color lab, natural dye garden, and educational facility focusing on growing, processing, and preserving the history of natural dyes and their enhancements and use in everyday objects. Can you talk about this exciting endeavor and how we can support your projects? Yeah, I think one of the things that I saw um, really coming out of this project um, were these relationships that were really strong and um, needed to continue, conversations that needed to continue, and ways in which living in California and being around more sustainably minded communities really grounded me in that. And so I sort of went to Micah with this um prospect with this proposal of having um, a natural dye facility. And one of the things that was, again, another um, divine happening um, is that the studio, it used to be an auto body shop right next to the annex at Hidden Harvest, the garden was being renovated by the owner. And, you know, he, he was looking to have it be leased. And so the person who had been helping to work on it just kind of came over to me and my son one day and was like, you all should go see it. And I was like, okay, I don't really, you know, I'm like, that's cool. I don't really like, I don't need a space. Um, <laughs> and then sort of I sat with it for like two days and then went to the garden on Saturdays, uh, which is our normal day to work. And I was like, Rosa, I, maybe we should take that space. Like, what do you, what do you think? You know? And she said, well, who owns it? And I, I said, um, I don't know. And then she's like, do you think that guy's the owner? And like, he had just happened to like drive in. Um, and so I'm like, well, <laughs> let's walk over and go see, you know? Um, so yeah, I think all of these like touch points just sort of made it very clear to me. Like, this is the thing that's, um, meant to sort of be a legacy project. And the only way to really do that was to step into it. Right. Like I definitely during, conversations with other people in in its inception was like um felt guided by the conversation but then I also understand that like I am the person who is responsible for paying the rent right like I don't want this project to be mine but I am responsible for these uh very um clear uh you know things and so realizing that and like I'm trying to get it built out and so um, one aspect of it is that we have three farms within the city of Baltimore who are working with us to grow indigo and marigolds and so we are intending to bring those um, crops to the um, to Bulai Junction to the studio to be processed um, and um, to find out what it looks like if multiple um, farms in the city are growing um, dye plants 
um, and what that would mean for a boutique market and, um, you know, a community that can also have access to them. So there's the alternative color lab where a company could come in and be interested in um, a sustainability portion of their business or um, taking a product that they have and enhancing it with um, dyes. Or um, we'd also like to have um, medicinal um, plants available. So if there's some part of um, your uh, your business, your, your company that you're interested in using, um, herbal um, plants for great. So, um, and the and the and the educational aspect where the garden will then um, allow for visitors to be able to come engage with the plants to understand where they come. Rosa's really interested in growing. Um, she started flax and um, um, uh, hemp. Um, we have cotton. She wanted Ramy. We couldn't find it. Um, and so we're looking at like what are the fibers that like are, are, are on our bodies or not on our bodies? Cause a lot of things are, are synthetic and, you know, poly. And so, um, what are the ways that these things grow and can be used? And, um, so having it be, um, workshop and educational based, whether that's curriculum in, um, schools or in, um, different organizations. So like, I also have all of these things that I'm I'm sort of endeavoring to do, but then also like I gotta pay the rent, you know. I gotta right. try. I, I have to try to. <laughs> I have to try to build it out, you know. And so the GoFundMe was really um, the inspiration uh, for doing that, which was like um, we were meant to the studios meant to open um, April, which was to happen right during uh, the Baltimore Natural Dye Initiative we were having a symposium, um, around, um, a lot of different aspects of, of the things that I've spoken about before and COVID happened. Right. And so I think I had sort of launched the GoFundMe like days before people's, like, I know that definitely before Baltimore went into a shelter in place. And so just super interesting, like, um, to think like, I have to continue to communicate the need and the desire to persist um, and that this project is not just um, in the Baltimore Natural Dye um, Initiative's inception, execution, and sort of finality, uh, which will come in October, um, but that, you know, this this can go on, um, you know, into forever. And so that's really what, um, Blue Light Junction is endeavoring to do. And so, um, the GoFundMe is on my Instagram, which is now under, uh, Traveling Miles Studio. And, um, yeah, any, any and all support is welcomed. Uh, I think one of the things that we're looking for too is, um, just feedback and connection. And, um, and so having these kinds of conversations really benefit, um, the work. Amazing. And we'll make sure that we put all of those links in the show notes. So before you go, we have one question that we ask everyone that joins the podcast. And that is, do you have any advice or words of wisdom to share with weavers and textile enthusiasts? There's a poem that my brother used to, um, you know, it's kind of a family joke, but he hated this poem he had to recite in high school. And, you know, it's basically like the, the line is like, when things get hard, don't quit. 
you know, and I think a lot of what um, I've learned about my practice um, is that when it feels hard, um, that's when you get to show up for yourself. You get to see what you're made of. You get to see where the strength is. And so I feel like um, the conversations around like equity and who's who who does this belong to? And, you know, um, like the work is the work. And so if you feel inspired, you know, not everybody needs to be, you know, a weaver to, you know, weave rugs or do something for the masses. Like it can just be for you. Um, and there's a lot of validity in that. And um, I think if you're just working on what you love, opportunities and experiences will find you because you're meeting it, you know, and that's the experience that I've had essentially like 15 years of wandering around the world, working with different artisans, learning different practices just for me came to this moment. Right. So like everything happened in this, like it, I would say it revealed itself in this moment, but I felt, I felt led by it. I always felt like if at least I feel um, connected to it, whatever the question is someone has, like, what are you going to do now that you learn how to weave rugs? Nothing. You know, like, what are you going to do now that you learn this thing? Nothing. Like, I don't need to have an answer for you right now, but I will say that the answers will come, you know, as long as you go with what guides you inside, those things will open up to other things. And so no one could ever have told me, oh, you're going to move to Baltimore. You're going to be working as a farmer. You're going to start a studio. Like, what? You know, (laughs) I would definitely not have ever come to any of those conclusions. And so limiting yourself by like needing it to be in a box for someone else's answer to be had or for there to be clarity on something. You don't need clarity. Like some sometimes it's just the work. And so whatever it is that you're doing, continue, you know, and don't quit. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you sharing your story and also going into depth about all of the different nuances and facets of the conversation of indigo and growing in America, but also just in your current community. I I really appreciate the voice that you've brought to the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, it was great to to talk about those things and also... um... Yeah, it just gives me more reflection time, which when you're trying to get everything done, you're not really in the reflection. You're just in the work. Um, But there is, you know, there's a lot of value in reflecting um, on things. So, yeah, thank you for the opportunity. That's a wrap. If you're interested in supporting Kenya's work and to donate to the Blue Light Junction Project, you can find links in the show notes at www.justyarn.com slash episode 122. On next week's episode, Sarah is speaking with Gather Textiles. Gather Textiles is a fiber studio and shop whose mission is to share their passion for using traditional techniques to create contemporary textiles. Their goal is to bring people together to exchange ideas, learn from one another, and to celebrate making things with their hands. We're really excited to bring that episode to you all next week. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode. Until next time, happy weaving.